All right. Uh, so today um, we've got three sermons left in the book of Revelation, including today. So we are right down to the end. Last week we covered the scene of the final battle where many adversaries of God were depicted as gathering to fight against God. And God's people were viewed as vulnerable, encamped. But God swoops in and saves them in a way that demonstrates his greatness over everyone and everything. And then we then also looked at the idea of hell. The Bible gives us numerous ideas as to what's involved in what hell is. It's eternal. It's dark, meaning it's void of light, void of God himself. There is gnashing of teeth, which means it involves suffering. It is a curse. It's possibly best described as involving the absence of God. Uh, Like we talked about last week when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he is forsaken. We're going to touch on that again briefly this morning as well. Lastly then, we also looked at God's judgment. And this was depicted with a couple of books or a number of books. In one compilation of, there was many books, and we saw the record of all of the works of Jesus' enemies. All the works that they have committed throughout their lives are recorded in these books, and this is how they will then be judged. They're judged on their works, which means, as we know from the rest of the Bible, they will all fall short based on their works. But the great news that we talked about last week is that there was another book, And this book was called The Book of Life. And in this book, we learned there were names listed. Not a record of someone's sins, not all of their shortcomings, their failures, not a list of all the works that they had committed, but just names. And this is grace. That our names are written in the book of life, and we do not need to live in fear of all of the acts that we have fallen short with. All right, so um, today we're looking at heaven. Uh, So we got through hell, right? So hopefully, like, we've been looking forward to this because uh, we have been trudging through the worst of it, the hard parts of Revelation. Now we get a couple weeks in heaven. So let's read the verses we're looking at today, and then I'm going to set the stage for what we're going to be doing. Revelation 21, uh, the first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for these words. I pray that we would get a vision of heaven that stirs our hearts, that would cause us to look forward to it, and not merely look forward to it, but to yearn for that day to come soon, for you to come back and to deliver us from all the brokenness that marks this world. So God, please draw us to yourself this morning. Do a work in us that only you can do. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so in Revelation, we kind of get two different descriptions of, Revel- or of heaven here, here at the end of the book. And today we get more of a big picture perspective of what heaven is. Next week, we're going to get uh, some more detail. And so we'll dig into a little bit more description of heaven next week as well. But for today, I simply want to work our way through these eight verses and let them instruct us about heaven as well as to give us pictures of Jesus as well. So let's begin with verse 1 then. What John sees, it says, is a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. So what stands out here, and maybe what confronts some of our conceptions of what we have been taught heaven is, uh, is about heaven is the fact that heaven is described not just as heaven. It's described as heaven and earth. What this says then is heaven isn't merely about disembodied things. It's not about us being disembodied. It's not about just merely spirits that are floating around. It's not just about like babies floating around on clouds. Heaven has physical facets to us. And so the mention of earth gives us some sense as to what's involved. Because we live on a physical earth. We live on an earth right now. And so this involves our senses. In the beginning of the Bible, we read of this earth being created. And then sin came and bent it all to hell. And what Revelation 21 is telling us is this wrecked world is going to be recreated. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be restored. It's going to be made new. But this old earth then gives us glimpses, glimpses of what the new earth will be like. So every day when we're walking around, as we gather together with Jesus' church, there should be glimpses for us of heaven. Yes, imperfect, It should leave us yearning for more. But we should be able to get glimpses through beauty and through many other things of what heaven will be like. Okay, so heaven is going to be heaven and earth. And it's going to have reminders of this earth. This earth is going to be renewed, remade, restored. Okay, so, so we can take cues then from what we see 
here on this earth in our lives now. But this idea of an old earth being made new, this is repeated throughout the, the Bible, at least the idea of this. So we read at other times, the old heart of stone is going to be made into a new heart of flesh. The old covenant of works is going to be made and is made into a new covenant of grace, a new relationship with God that occurs through faith. The old sacrificial system for sins has been replaced by Jesus' one sacrifice. He is the new sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus takes things that are old and he makes them new. He redeems them. He takes these things that are broken and he puts them back together and uses them for things that he wants to accomplish. So he takes what is evil, what is sinful, and he pays the debt. He redeems it and he saves us. So over and over in the Bible we see this picture of old things becoming new, of dead things being raised to life. And this idea of old to new, heaven invading earth, is seen all the more in verse 2. It says there, it speaks of a new Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the center of so much of life in Israel. It was the center of worship for them. This is where people would come for the festivals, where people would come and gather at the temple, where they would come and gather so that they could be in God's presence in the temple. So this is where the whole nation of Israel would come. And so the reference here speaks to the initial readers especially because the old Jerusalem had likely just been destroyed. So they could look at the, the old Jerusalem and they could see, man, it has been invaded, it has been overrun, it has been destroyed. And here's the promise. It will be made new. This is, what's God, this is what God is going to do. And, and not just with that city, but with the whole of this earth. He's going to invade it and make it new. So heaven is depicted as a city, which we're going to touch more on that next week. So we're going to leave that for now. Um, but we, we will get a chance to explore that a bit more next week. At the end of verse 1, then, there's a phrase that, that is a bit curious. It says that the sea was no more. The sea was no more. Now, if we read this literally, it would seem confusing to us because we know that there are seas here on this earth, right? And, and oftentimes people are going to the seas to see their beauty. They want to see the power of the seas because they remind us of God's power, the one who created them. But furthermore, to re- remove the seas from the new earth would then be to remove beauty, right? So this is another example of how it's so important to read Revelation symbolically. The removal of the sea is a symbolic reference to the chaos that's represented in the sea. Throughout the Bible, when, when it refers to the sea, it oftentimes is communicating the idea of chaos. And chaos occurs in this world because of sin. When sin came into the world, it threw the world into chaos. What we're seeing in the picture throughout Revelation and here is all of the chaos of this broken world is removed. 
the beauty, the majesty, the power of the seas isn't necessarily removed because if you remember back earlier in Revelation, we saw the sea before the throne. But the sea was depicted as calm. It was glassy. So all of the chaos has been removed from the sea. But the idea that that the beauty of the seas, the power, the majesty of the seas is still being communicated. Okay, so then in verse 3, we get a strong contrast to what we talked about in regard to hell. Last week, I gave a number of biblical examples to show how a primary aspect of hell is the absence of God. And we see this most pointedly on the cross as Jesus cries out in anguish about why his father had forsaken him. And here, we now see the opposite. Heaven is a place where God dwells with humanity. God is near to his people. He is with those who have oftentimes felt far from God. And what is so striking in this picture is knowing our experience here on earth and how our experience oftentimes mirrors Jesus on the cross. We are people who have felt and who feel the separation from God, oftentimes because of our own sin. And this picture is proving the fact that sin has now been removed in heaven. It is no more. It no more creates this separation. No more shame. No more fear. No more suffering. No more pain. And this idea gets expanded in verse 4. But before we go there, I want to draw our attention to something many of us have probably thought of. When our loved ones die we oftentimes find comfort in an idea that we will someday be reunited with them. I think many of us have probably felt this. I've felt this. And the thinking is that they are in heaven and we will be there also. There's, There's a good part of that, but there's a really dangerous part of this as well. And the dangerous part is our tendency then is to look forward to heaven because of our loved ones. Oftentimes only because of our loved ones. And it's not wrong to look forward to that. But we can't let that trump, override, overwhelm the idea that heaven is about Jesus. So what what I'm about to say isn't intended to minimize the pain we experience as we watch loved ones die. It is gut-wrenching. And some of you have walked through this in very personal and acute ways. So I'm not minimizing that at all. But the ultimate reality of heaven is Jesus. That's the ultimate reality of heaven. Being near to him. Knowing him. Worshiping him. Enjoying his goodness. And the fact that he will dwell with his people is profound. When we think heaven will be great because I'll get to see my loved ones, and this is to the detriment of Jesus, there's a tendency then to downplay Jesus. And I just want to say, any action, any thought, any belief that leads to de-Jesusifying heaven is a hellish thought. Okay, so, so we need to be really careful that our conceptions of heaven aren't void of Jesus. Okay, 
The ultimate reality of heaven is Jesus. He, he's the one who makes us whole. He's the one who makes things right. He's the one who makes heaven, heaven. So my push here is I want us to, I want us to be shaped by what heaven is being described as in the Bible and learn to trust that God is good. Even if we struggle to see this, even if we struggle to believe this at times, to, to see and believe his goodness, to trust. He will write it all. He will make it all make sense for us. And conversely, I, I don't want us to fall prey to this consumeristic tendency that we are all tempted to do because we live in America and we swim in the waters of consumerism and we are all tempted to make heaven what we want it to be. Okay? God knows us. He knows us better than ourselves. And what heaven will be will satisfy us far beyond whatever any one of us thinks heaven will be. However much satisfaction we think heaven will contain, it's going to blow our socks off. It's going to be far greater than anything we can conceive of here. What the Bible is implicitly teaching us is only Jesus can satisfy us. Only he can satisfy us. He is what our hearts long for. He is what our souls long for. He is the unshakable ache within us. And this is why week after week we lay the gospel before ourselves and we look at Jesus. Because that's the answer. That will be the answer in eternity. And so we want to usher in eternity to the here and now. Jesus is what we are craving after. And we see his goodness then here in verse 4. Let me read this verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This should be a really comforting verse for us. And I think it is for many of us. I mean, we're a pretty young crowd here, right? So a lot of the arthritis hasn't set in yet, but maybe it's starting to. It has for me, right? But, but when the arthritis starts setting in, man, this is a comforting verse. But all of us experience sadness. And when the sadness hits, whether it's, it's really small or it's deep, and the despair seems like something we can't get out of. This verse is intended to comfort us. When the cars break down, when the house projects keep coming, because stuff keeps breaking in the house, when we are so busy, we are overwhelmed, we can't see a way out, when depression is heavy, this verse is intended to be a comfort. So it's intended to comfort, but my experience says this verse doesn't only comfort, it also raises questions for us as well. Questions like, how can I be unsad when loved ones aren't in heaven with me? How can I get over the injustice of this world? Like, there, there is severe injustice. How will we ever get over that? 
how is it possible to never cry? To never feel that strong negative emotion? And then this leads to, won't I become bored? Won't heaven be boring? The big picture here is God is good. God is good. He will make it all make sense. There are things about heaven that we can't answer here and now. There are things about heaven we can answer. But there are other things that we've got to trust. This is an exercise of faith. And this is why we want to keep staring at the cross, keep looking at Jesus. Because I guarantee you, not a single one of us, as we live our lives here on this earth, is going to exhaust the goodness of God, is going to plumb the depths of the goodness of God. There is so much more. It's a sea we're swimming in, and we should keep swimming in it, keep exploring new parts of the mountain of God's goodness. Keep turning the diamond of his goodness in the sunlight so we can see its beauty more and more. So what this verse suggests is, is a reality that is beyond our comprehension because it's hard for us to put it all together because heaven is depicted as so good, right? No more tears, no more pain. What? We can't conceive of that in many ways. What this verse does is it then clarifies belief for us. Do we believe God is who he says he is? Throughout the Bible, are we believing God as he's revealing himself? Have we seen Jesus in Revelation? All of the goodness, all of the glory, all of the power of Jesus. Is this the Jesus we're seeing is in Revelation? And is this the Jesus we're believing in day in and day out? Do we actually believe he will do all that he is depicted as doing in this book? That his power is that great that when Jesus returns, he actually will defeat evil for good. He will put death in its grave. It will end. It will be no more. Do we believe he will do that? Do we believe his love is stronger than anything? That he is faithful in a perfect way. That there's no chink in the armor of his faithfulness. Through and through he is faithful. He will never disappoint. He will never leave us. Never forsake us. He will always have our back. He will always love us. It says, he will wipe away every tear. So our conception is he'll have to continually do this, right? That's what our lived experience is here. But the, the picture given to us of existence in heaven and the effectiveness of his tear wiping is that it all results in no more crying. No more crying. It's done. So in the whole experience of heaven, there has to be this mending, this healing, this restorative process that is a bit hard for us to fathom here and now. We, because we struggle to see the real effectiveness in this world. Right? We cry tears. But a week later, 
Something else is going to induce tears. We, we sweep the floor. And if we do it in the morning by the night, it needs to be swept again. We instruct our kids. There are things I've said to my kids thousands of times, and I'm not done. Over and over, like we see the ineffectiveness in this world. But there's something qualitatively different with what's being described here. In the wiping of tears away, God is going to take tears away. There will be no more tears from suffering. None whatsoever. There will be no more death at all. Not even a hint or a fear of death. That There will be no more heaviness that we'll have to bear. No more hopelessness. No more depression. No more darkness. And all of this then means this will be true and we won't be bored either. Because if there's anything I know about God and anything I know about this world is that there's endless adventure. There's endless things for us to learn to explore, to know. And so that has to be the case for us in heaven. Like, we're not going to be bored people. So all the goodness of God and none of the boredom, none of the brokenness that we're dealing with here in this world. As hard as this may be for us to conceive of at times, This is what Jesus has come to do and will come to do. And what it says in verse 5 is occurring. It says, He is making all things new. So everything will be remade. Absolutely everything. And and so in this, that's going to include our conception of understanding these types of things. There will be newness of understanding for us as well. Everything will be remade new. Not only is this stated, but then John is instructed. I love how there's these few times in Revelation it says, write this down. Write this down. Make sure people know this. Make sure people don't miss this. (coughs) For these words are trustworthy and true. God puts his stamp of approval on this. It will happen. It is written. It will not change. And then this is followed with the phrase, it is done. It is done. Uh, In Isaiah 65, 17, I'm going to read this. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Sorry, you guys, I spent my day yesterday yelling for four basketball games, so that, that's what's going on with my throat. So, we're reading here about the same things that we're reading about in Revelation 21. This concept of new heavens and new earth and how this overrides everything that has come before. And so there's this aspect of completion that we then find throughout the Bible. Okay? So in Genesis 2-2, we hear a similar statement. It says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. 
and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay, so we see, we hear a similar statement here after God creates the world. In John 19.30, Jesus says, <coughs> after he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus is making a similar statement as he is disarming the powers of evil. He is saying, it is done. And now here in Revelation 21.6, we're reminded that God is the one who finishes who completes these things as he identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He's driving home his ultimate role that he is the one who began all of this in Genesis. And he is the one who is bringing it all to the end, to its completion. And now what we're reading in Revelation 21, this future reality for us today, it is done. The new heavens and the new earth has been remade. This is what he has promised to accomplish and will accomplish. And then in verse 6, we also encounter an example of the gospel. It says, I will give without payment. I will give without payment. We see this in Isaiah 55 as well. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We need to see the beauty of heaven and the kindness of God in this. Throughout eternity, God is the one who gives. Those in heaven are the ones who are receiving, and it is a forever receiving. So we've got to see how grace is thick in all of this. And what really needs to slap us in the face is the fact that no one will enter into heaven believing that God can be given anything. No one's giving anything to God. God gives, we receive. Our lives aren't about all of the things we can do for God. Life is about and found in understanding all God has given to us, despite our rebellion. And this is central to the gospel. God owns it all. We are unendingly in need. So hear me, it is unchristian. It is anti-gospel to think we give anything to God. The Christian life is about boasting in Jesus, not ourselves. And this is what heaven will be all about as well. God gives. And what I love about these verses is he's giving to those who have nothing to offer. Right? Come, everyone who thirsts, and he who has no money. He who has no money. He will give life without payment. We've got no money to give to him. Right? And he gives. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of grace. And this is what heaven will be all about. Lastly, then, what, what we learn here is that heaven is for those who conquer. Heaven is for those who conquer. Now, we need to understand something really clearly. It says in verse 7 that the one who conquers will have this heritage. So don't think this is talking merely about future realities. Yes, it's talking about future realities. It is speaking also to what will happen in the future, or to what's occurring right now as well, okay? So the one who conquers future reality but occurring right now 
as well, will have this heritage in the future, okay? But there's conquering that's occurring here and now. This is why this book began with those letters to churches. Remember how we read this? He who has an ear, let him hear. We conquer now. We conquer today. Not by achieving great religious feats, but by believing in the one who has conquered at the cross and will conquer at his second coming as well. In this world, we will have trouble. But the call throughout Revelation has been for our faith in Jesus to persevere. And that's how we conquer. Come what may, we endure in faith knowing that what awaits us at the end will be far better than anything we can imagine here and now. The spiritual perfection that was attained by Jesus will impact our physical reality today and in the future in this heaven and earth as it's being remade in perfection. And so the picture that we get of heaven here in other parts of the Bible as well is unending goodness. Even if we even if it's a struggle for us to see it, to conceive of it, even if it seems far beyond us, which it is, heaven is unending goodness. And it's something that we should look forward to with anticipation, long for, pray that that day would come soon. Two points of gospel application for us then as we close. If the future is going to be about being near to Jesus, the call for us today is to be near to Jesus. And this is what Jesus instructed us as well, to abide with him. John 15, 4, this is Jesus teaching. He said, abide in me. Be near to Jesus. Wait for him. Continue with Jesus all the days of your lives. Conform your heart to his. Accept Jesus and his ways. One of the greatest ways we do this is by being his church. By being deeply connected to one another. Not just showing up and have surfacey relationships, but actually living in deep relationship with one another. Communicating the beauty of the gospel to one another. Reminding each other of it, receiving grace from each other, giving grace to each other, encouraging one another, confessing our sin to one another, building each other up. In all of this, we are ushering in what we will find and experience ultimately in heaven, light invading darkness, goodness. Today, we can be part of letting that light invade Darkness. Light shines in and through us as we abide with the light of the world and as we do it together. So, where we're headed is dwelling with God. He has promised that where we gather together as His church, He is there as well. So, abiding in Jesus, one of the best ways we can do that is to hang out, have a barbecue, pray with one another, go do some activity outside gather together in our homes be together so abide with jesus then secondly it says 
or the second gospel application point is just to receive grace. It can be hard for us to receive because it suggests weakness. You ever feel that? Do you guys want to be the ones giving, not receiving, because you don't want to be viewed as weak? I think most of us feel that. To receive something implies we have a lack. It is good to remind ourselves that we are lacking. Spiritually, we are lacking in massive ways. We need to be reminded of grace. We need to receive grace. I saw this quote this week. Grace is forgiveness of sin, not approval of it. I think there's a tendency at times when we want to receive grace is we we just want to be able to have our sin approved and to be able to continue in our sin. Grace is not that. Grace doesn't allow us to continue in our sin. It forgives our sin, but it doesn't approve of our sin. My encouragement to receive grace is never intended to excuse sin, but to help us run from it or kill it. So receive grace. Receive forgiveness of sin and let it drive sin out of your life. To begin to know the freedom from sin available to you. Trust in God's power, not our own or the deceitful power of sin. So day after day, we need to be people who are receiving grace. Grace from Jesus vertically, grace from one another horizontally as well.